Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and I am the bearer of some monumental news. Soho Bites has been found to be the fourth, yes, the fourth most bohemian podcast on the internet. This is according to the Feedspot website, who say we are one to watch in 2020. But hang on a minute. 2020 is nearly over, and I suspect that Feedspot chose Soho Bites through the use of an algorithm looking for particular words. In this case, the word bohemian, which appears on our main feed page at sohobitespodcast.libsyn.com. Hot on our heels at number five was the Porter Lions podcast, which is a bohemian luxury jewellery brand based in New Orleans. Hmm. But you know what? I'll take it. As Oscar Wilde famously said, the only thing worse than being picked by an algorithm is not being picked by an algorithm. The last time round, I promised you a total absence of sex and death in this episode, and boy, have we delivered. I warn you, though, that the word knickers does crop up a few times, but if you think you can cope with that, welcome to the sex and death-free Swinging London episode. Groovy, baby, and indeed fab. In the first half of the programme, I take a stroll down Carnaby Street with the YouTuber and London historian Jago Hazard, crazy name, crazy guy, to try to figure out why that street is so famous more than 50 years after its swinging 1960s heyday. I say took a stroll down Carnaby Street, but actually we huddled in the doorway of a closed shop trying to stay warm like two little match girls. This was lockdown in November. In the second half of the programme, it's film chat time as usual, and I'm joined from his home in Italy by artist, musician, author and satirist Barry Fantoni. Barry presented a BBC TV show in 1966 all about the trends of the day called A Whole Scene Going, and his recent memoir about the 1960s bears the same title. Who better to talk to then about the quintessentially 1960s film Smashing Time from 1967? It bills itself as a satire on the swinging 60s phenomenon, and with Barry being a 1960s satirist, he's bound to love it, isn't he? And can I just say, the guests in this episode have the best names ever. I'm going to say them again. Jago Hazard, Barry Fantoni. Stay cool, stay groovy, stay tuned.
Here's a thing to do if you're at a loose end. Open Google Maps on your phone and find Soho. Position the map on the screen so that the whole of Soho is on there within its recognised borders of Oxford Street, Regent Street, Shaftesbury Avenue and Charing Cross Road. What do you notice? Google Maps doesn't call it Soho. Google Maps calls it Carnaby. Carnaby is a street, you say, not an area. That's true. But such is the position of Carnaby Street in the popular imagination as a centre of fashion and all things groovy that it somehow managed to change maps, or Google Maps anyway. wonder if money changed hands. In the film for this episode, Smashing Time, two girls from up north, Brenda and Yvonne, make a pilgrimage to London to find fame and fortune and Carnaby Street is where they're trying to get to because in the words of the song it was, or so they thought, the street that is part of the beat at the heart of the scene. But in 2020, is it still a groovy, happening place? And was it ever actually groovy in the first place? To find out, I met up with my groove consultant, the well-known groovy YouTuber and London historian Jago Hazard, in the KFC at Newport Pagnell Services. No, I'm joking, we met on Carnaby Street. I feel like I've stepped back in time to the 1960s, Jago. Yes, it's quite a switched-on and happening scene. <laughs> why, why are we here? This corporate-looking street with banners up, what is it? Well, this is Carnaby Street, uh, which, for a very brief period, how brief depends on your perspective, was the heart of swinging London. And everybody's heard of Carnaby Street. Across the world, people come here, don't they, for that swinging, groovy vibe. Doesn't seem very swinging and groovy to me. No, um, these days it's it's very chain-based. It's uh, you've got your your Puma, your Levi's. I'm, I'm looking at a, a Doc Martens shop. We're next to a, a Sweaty Betty, which sounds most unpleasant. And upon the wall of Sweaty Betty's is a plaque. Uh, yes, um, the plaque commemorates John Stephen, who was responsible for the rise and, to some extent, the fall of Carnaby Street as a, as a swinging destination. Prior to the swinging business, it was just an ordinary street, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just another part of Soho. Uh, it was a, It was, in a sense your archetypal uh, gentrification story. So John Stephen had a boutique elsewhere in Soho, uh, which opened in 1956, and then he moved to Carnaby Street in 57, uh, more or less, where, where we are now. And he opened a shop called Vince, which was very much... He, he was very much capitalising on the, on the mod trend he pioneered a lot of these concepts that were just totally new back then. For instance, the idea that the shop assistants would be dressed in the clothes. It was very casual. It was almost, almost a, a club as much as it was a shop. I mean, at that time, even the notion of men going shopping was seen as a little bit effeminate. Um, it's, John Stephen himself was semi-openly gay, sort of in that... In that um, pre-67 way where it's everyone knows 
just don't get caught doing anything and uh, you know your parents can smile and uh, and nod and so did John Stephen design the clothes or um, make them or yeah um, he did a lot of designing he bought a lot of stuff in he was uh, very much a fan of in a sense what we would now call vintage fashion he kind of bought a lot of kind of army surplus stuff you know obviously you'd had the war uh, not too long ago and you'd had national service so he bought a lot of that stuff in um, it was kind of controversial actually because it, it was kind of a rebellion against conservatism but obviously a lot of the said uh, conservative people were a little bit upset to see these sort of if eat young men going round with RAF uniforms and stuff. He himself was very conservative fashion-wise. He was very much a suit-and-tie kind of guy, but he believed that men should be able to wear whatever they wanted. Um, he sold sort of, you know, luminous shirts. Uh, he, he tried to uh, bring the mini kilt into fashion, which didn't catch on possibly for the best the mini kilt for men this is yes yeah okay. um i i'm not sure because he himself was scottish i think it was in, in a sense a bit like the military thing i think it was a subversion of traditional wear so the the whole groovy fab thing as we think of it now with carnaby street when did that actually explode because he this was sort of late 50s wasn't he when he first moved here yeah it was a bit of a slow burn really i would say it was around 1964 that the really swinging era took off well you had john stephen then you had other designers kind of moving in um, that was how the area became this kind of fashion mecca it sort of sort of a crude uh, kind of accumulated over the years. Um, I mean, it was only really swinging London for a couple of years, I, I would say, about 64 to 66. So by the time of Smashing Time, the film, which was 67, by your reckoning, the swinging days of Carnaby Street were well and truly over by then. Yeah, it, in, in a sense, it's, it's that hipster thing where it became cool and thus stopped being cool. Like yeah. it, became, it became a tourist destination. 1973 was when they, when they paved it. You could no longer have the mods parking their scooters outside. I mean, it, it, was, it was great for the shops. Like It increased their foot traffic. I think it was 15,000 a year they, they had after the first year of pedestrianisation. But yeah, that was very much a kind of, we're not looking for the people on scooters. You know, we're, we're not looking for the mods. Yeah, we're, we're looking for the people who are going to come here and spend lots of money. This is no longer a working class lad saving up their pay to buy a fancy suit or the you know, lower middle class lads looking to be sophisticated. It's we are selling to the people who are already what the mods are trying to look like. Yeah. In a sense. Or try not to look like. Well, yes. And by that time, also people like. John Stephen, Mary Quant, they'd started selling their clothes in, in you know, C&A and places. Uh, their designs were being mass-produced. So, in a way, the, the things that people were coming to Carnaby Street for, they didn't need to. It was, it was mainstream. There was no need to kind of be here. It wasn't, this, it wasn't this secret. Because if people like Yvonne and Brenda have heard about it up in the industrial north and they come down to see it, then surely the gig's over. So we're, his, we're sitting here in 2020, Carnaby Street, there is an area 
supposedly now called Carnaby, so it's still marketing itself as this cool place to come to, particularly to do with fashion. How has it managed to do that based on two years, over 50 years ago? The area very much has continued to push itself. I think if we're going to pin an exact date on uh, when it started to decline. I think we can say April 1966 because that was when Time magazine produced the swinging London issue with the headline you can walk across it on the grass to describe London which may have a double meaning now I come to think of it. (laughs) I think that was when it came to the world's attention and I think in a sense while things were changing here you know in America in the rest of the world it was it had been cemented as this hip and happening place while over here it it was starting to look a little bit touristy it was quite clever i suppose from the carnaby people to i mean they are looking at the american market aren't they yeah very much so and the the british invasion of america with the bands that's that's around 63 64 isn't it yes beatles kinks stones and to have this place this destination this mecca to go to Uh, i mean at the time this was by no means the only place where you could get high fashion i mean there were i think two thousand boutiques in london by by the end of the 60s because yeah mary quant had her shop in chelsea um there was stuff popping up around portobello i mean i think in a sense it was that uh, kind of um gentrification march where Carnaby Street had become fashionable and wealthy, so the actual cheap shops, the ones that actually catered to the to the kind of working and lower middle class young people, were opening up elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, in, in our lifetimes, we've seen the same thing happen in Spitalfields and Brick Lane. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, the the case in point for me is is Camden because when I was a teenager, I remember very well. You go there with like a tenner in your pocket, and you know, come away with like you know, two jackets and an armful of shirts. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's you know, it's full of these kind of stalls that sell the same Union Jack slathered tat and humorous t-shirts. Shirts and yeah. things. What's happening around Portobello now is what happened here, where there you've sort of got these high-end clothing chains moving in there, trading off this notion of Portobello as this vintage market that's very inexpensive, and of course, yeah. Now Notting Hill is the epitome of a gentrified area. Yeah. So where's next then? If we've exhausted Carnaby Street and Spitalfields and Camden and Brick Lane, where should I go to to buy my... Um, what's the Jago Hazard fashion tip for the next happening place? It's hard to think of anywhere in London that has that kind of cheapened up and coming feel. Maybe some of the suburbs. Dalston? Um, yeah, to some extent. I think that's kind of already Is kind it? of... Damn. Yeah, I I fear so. I mean, when I'm looking for vintage stuff, uh, my top tip is go to the charity shops in places that are not very fashionable, but quite wealthy. Thank you to Jago Hazard there for meeting up with me on that chilly Saturday morning. You can follow Jago on Instagram or on his YouTube channel, which has some fascinating videos. There are links to both of these on the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. (laughs) 
Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions it's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. A few weeks ago, I was reclining on my couch at home, watching a certain film on everybody's favourite TV station, when my phone beeped. It was a text message from my old mate Joe. Mate, he said, watching the worst London film I've ever seen on talking pictures. Smashing time, so am I, I replied. I'm doing it on the podcast in a few weeks. Apparently, it has a cult following. It's absolutely appalling, but strangely, I can't take my eyes off it. Oh, Arthur Mulloyd! Oh, please. Yes, my dear. Joe has sent you a link. Wikipedia.com. Arthur Mulloyd. Check out his personal life. Really dark. It's true. It is really dark. There's a link at the show notes. SohoBitesPodcast.com. This water sits greasy. Crooks are muckier than the going in. We'll change it then. There's plenty in the tank. There's the FOMO. Hey, look. And a young Eddie Yates. You spot him? Yeah. Onslow. <laughs> There's loads of British character actors. The drunk Irishman. Oh, Sam Kidd. He was a staple of British films at the time. Absolute staple, exactly. Never stopped. Oh, the acting in this. It is shocking. I think Lynn Redgrave is channeling Audrey Roberts. Irene Handel. It's produced by Carlo Ponti, Sophia Lorenzo's husband. He's one of the great Italian producers. Did Irene Handel just call that dog mail order? <laughs> I didn't catch that. What's Michael York come as? He's pretending to be Cockney. David Bailey. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Trying to recognise the locations. Dominique has sent you a link. Realstreets.com. Smashing time. That is amazing. It is the best website. I can categorically state that this is the worst film I have ever seen, ever. Oh, I don't know. I've actually chuckled a few times. Interesting period piece. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But it's still the worst film ever. Hey, a sense of pie fight coming on. Too much, man. Far out, baby. What a lovely Sunday. Do, 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 do. Our life has just begun. Day. Do, 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 do. But is that fair? Is it as bad as Joe said? If the user reviews and IMDb are anything to go by, it's a 10 out of 10 hilarious romp and a satire on the social mores of the day. And on a recent episode of the Talking Pictures TV podcast, it was praised to the sky, so it must have something going for it. The story begins with our two young protagonists arriving at St Pancras from an unnamed northern town. Brenda, played by Rita Tushingham, seems the more sensible and nervous of the two, and is somewhat in the shadow of her friend Yvonne, played by Lynn Redgrave, who is gauche and clumsily blatant about her lust for fame and fortune. Due to a misunderstanding and then a brazen theft, they soon find themselves penniless in Camden and are forced to part ways for the afternoon. Brenda ends up working in a greasy spoon cafe run by Arthur Mullard to pay for her lunch, where the first of several slapstick set pieces takes place. 
Some might say hilarity ensues. Others might say tiresome and unfunny tomfoolery occurs. Either way, while this is going on, Yvonne discovers Carnaby Street and in turn is herself discovered by Tom Wabe, a Cockney photographer in the mould of David Bailey played implausibly by Michael York. The girls bicker their way through the next hour or so from job to unsuitable job via the overly long slapstick routines and weirdly out of place musical numbers and eventually both of them do end up being part of the fab and groovy swinging London scene. Yvonne as a manufactured pop star and Brenda as a quirky Jean Shrimpton type model. With fame having tested their friendship, they realise that maybe things weren't so bad in their old lives and, as Robert Murphy points out in his book 60s British Cinema, having searched for thrills in the big city, the film ends up endorsing homely virtues like sincerity, loyalty and friendship. The film is touted as a satire, but it's so gentle a satire that it's more of a pastiche. And although the film pokes fun at some of the tropes and oddities of the swinging 60s scene, it doesn't really find its satirical teeth until the last third of the film. This is when, firstly, the girls find themselves caught up in an episode of a TV show called You Can't Help Laughing, a parody of Candid Camera which destroys lies for laughs. Then Yvonne has her brush with stardom thanks to the intervention of an unscrupulous talent manager played by Jeremy Lloyd. Now listen, baby, we have got to make a record. Yes, definitely, something smashing. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I have got just the thing. It is fantastic, man. Really fantastic. We're just going to play that back, sweetie. It was really great. Fantastic, OK? Yvonne clearly can't sing and the session band and singers are terrible, but through some magical jiggery-pokery in the studio, the awful cacophony is quickly remedied, and what comes out the other end is a poptastic song that rockets straight to the top of the hit parade. Although the lyrics of this song, all about the vacuousness of the youth scene, are quite funny and could be interpreted as a swipe at money men exploiting the naive enthusiasm of young people, it's also possible to see it as stemming from a dislike of these young people, who we should see as stupid, and that this attitude is coming from the rather bitter perspective of people who are perhaps slightly too old to have joined in the carefree fun that the 60s offered to this one small sliver of society. The script lacks the deftness and humour you might normally expect from its writer, George Melly, and, in case I haven't mentioned them enough already, the various slapstick routines involving custard, robots, laxatives, bubble bath and spray paint are tiresome and long and just not funny. I'm sure there are acerbic observations to be made about some of the sillier extremes of the 1960s, and Smashing Time is almost making a satirical comment about them, but not quite coherently or pointedly enough. Almost 30 years later, with the benefit of hindsight, the Austin Powers films made a much better job of this. On a positive note, some of the musical numbers are fun and witty, the locations look great from here in the 21st century, and the supporting cast is excellent, with lovely appearances from Irene Handel, Ian Carmichael, Anna Quayle, Peter Jones and John Clive. You might think you don't know who John Clive is, but look him up, you'll definitely recognise him. When I offered my guest for this episode a choice of any of the Soho films on my special Soho films list, this was the one he chose. The painter, author, musician and satirist Barry Fantoni, for it is he, 
was one of the very early members of the Private Eye team and gives the lie to the tired old phrase, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't really there, because Barry was a key figure in the 1960s Cultural Revolution and remembers all of it. Barry now lives in Turin from where he spoke to me on Skype, which is why the audio quality is not 100%. It turns out that in preparation for our conversation, Barry had been reading about the film on a well-known film-related website. I think if you go to uh, international you know, data movie based, whatever it, I call it, IBM, because I can't remember what it's really called. Yeah. <laughs> but but if you, the old review does say that um, that one of its problems is that it was made at a point when the the, the actual core of the revolution was over. Obviously, we were talking about a cultural revolution and and something deeper than Carnaby Street. And, and you see, my, my, my problem with this film it is twofold. The first of all is that it hasn't made its own mind up what it wants to tell you. Now, whenever you tell a story or write a book or make a radio program, you have to have an end in sight. You have to work towards an end. It's something that you feel that there's a reason for doing what you're doing. Well, the filmmakers clearly didn't have one. What the writers saw, what the directors saw, was a phenomenon taking place, but they didn't see it actually. They just they just read about it. So they, their experience of the sixties was not even second, probably third, fourth, and fifth hand. If they had said, "Okay, look, there's something called the swinging sixties, which I view as something which is very local. It's it's Londo-centric." It's based around a very, very small area. It involved a very few number of people, but whose influence is very, very broad. And it wasn't just about clothes or the kind of boots you wore or even the records you played. It was something about taking control, a form of liberty, um, something which is very much in all our minds at present with the COVID epidemic because people's liberty has been taken away and we now realise what liberty really means. And when you look back to the 50s, you realise that there was very little in the way of freedom, not because you were restricted or punished for what you did, but simply there was no opportunity to do anything. Mm. People had come out of national service, hundreds of thousands of young men didn't really have a future. They didn't have much of a... Well, there were jobs, but they weren't very they weren't very important types of jobs. They wouldn't advance people very much. My cousin drove a bus. I mean that was about it really. If you and and as everybody said, it was the skies were grey, it was a bleak feeling for everyone. Teddy boys had livened it up a little bit and then Elvis and Rock and Roll came along and Rock Around the Clock came along and then the Beatles came along and then pop art came along and then very, very gradually the younger generation, my generation, younger than my cousin who did national services generation, started to build a new form of cultural society. And we're talking about culture now. When I wrote a whole scene going, I decided that I wouldn't engage too much in the areas of politics. I mean, there were several important people in the 60s. There was Harold Wilson and Kennedy and all the rest of it. But um, their governments and their, their control of society didn't really have any effect on the way that, that the younger generation felt. The only point of them was that the, the private eye, which is a central 
feature of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s. Uh, it's, it's, it's a raison d'etre to attack politicians and people who reported the actions of politicians. Now, when you make a film like Smashing Time, you think, well, this, this is a film about the 60s. Then these central features of the 60s revolution should be included in some way, but of course they're not. You watch the entire movie and there is no reference of any anything to the revolution of humour or private eye or that was the week that was or to David Hockney or to Peter Blake or maybe a few references to pop, well no, not a few, quite a lot of references to pop music because one of the actresses becomes a pop singer, I think the other one becomes a model, I mean all of which are of no consequence. It wasn't the models that made the 60s what they were, it was the photographers that made the 60s what they were, and yes there's a photographer in this film, but he's a stereotype, he isn't David Bailey and he doesn't do anything that, 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 that suggests for one minute that we were talking about a social revolution. And I'm sorry if I keep repeating it, but it is very, very important that we realise it's a major, major turning point in the way that young people behaved. And so this film really should have been called Carry On Up Carnaby Street, because all it is is a succession <laughs> of really terrible jokes. Yeah. yeah. In a way, though, it is satirising. It's, it's kind of on your side in that... It's satirising the commercialisation of young people. and that, I mean, there's that song that she sings, I'm So Young, this manufactured pop, and the guy just ripped her off for 10 grand in order to make her temporarily famous. So it's it's not addressing the pop art and the things that you're talking about, but neither is it criticising them. It's criticising the, sort of the shallow side of all that revolution. Yes, that's true, but I don't, I don't see any of that as being what we were part of. I think the exploitation of talent uh, has been present in every generation. The exploitation of people's ability or lack of it is part of an evolution of society that's been in progress, I would say, for probably two to three hundred years. If you go back to the beginning of Hollywood, you find the same thing. There is nothing novel, new or revealing in that. The film used it because obviously there were some people in the 60s, and there were lots of people in the 60s who didn't get paid for their music. I mean, if Ray Davis has, has one carp, uh, you know, if, if he and I are sitting having a drink, if he's got a moan for about something, it's usually about some disc he made that he didn't get paid for. And here's a guy who's a millionaire, you know. I mean, so the, so the film basically uh, is really about two girls from Liverpool that are both rather young and inexperienced. And somewhat belatedly, these two girls arrive in London uh, hoping to make their fame and fortune. But actually, uh, again, um, there has to be some logic and reason in movies, even if it's very remote. Mm. And, and, and it was over by the time they made this film. It, there, was not, there was nothing to be learned from it. There, there, there's not even a student of costume or any aspect of, of what made the 60s what they were can be found in this film um, but that can't be found in a million other places. And um, it, to me, a, comp a complete waste of time um, to have done this. Um, as I said before, if it was carry on up Carnaby Street and it had a decent cast who could act, then Redgrave cannot act. I'm sorry, I mean, this isn't, don't want to be rude about people, but uh, <laughs> acting, yes, I do want to be rude about people. Um, you, you know, she's as wooden as can be. Rita Tushingham uh, was lucky, I think, to, to get where she was. 
she had a funny face and, and photographers like that and filmmakers liked it. They've been chosen for very 60s reasons, haven't they? Because Lynn Redgrave had been in Georgie Girl the year before. Yes, she had. Richard yeah. Tushingham had been in um, Taste of Honey in, I think, yeah. what, 61 or something. And they'd both yes. together been in um, The Girl with Green Eyes. Yeah. Um, they've also obviously been cast in a very intentional way because they are faces of the 60s. Yeah, I, I can I can see the meeting, can't you? You know, in, in Mordor Street. Yeah, Lou. Yeah, who, who are we going to get to play the lead parts? Well, who played the lead parts before? Well, Rita's free, uh, Lynn's free, and they both represent the 60s. I know, why don't we put them together again and make a film about the 60s? I don't know where you get these ideas. You're, you're just brilliant. We'll do it. But what about the script and the rest of it? Ah, well, script and the rest of it. We'll make it up as we go. I know, why don't we have a fall, in, fall over in a puddle and say my knickers all wet? Oh, that's brilliant. Let's do, let's, uh, uh, come on. I mean, it's carry on up Carnaby Street. It's, yeah. it's terrible. For, for me, I, I think it's, I, I like the kind of, you know, the party at the end in the post office tower and um, the people who turn up are people like, gangsters and there's a little nod between the gangster and the copper the copper looks slightly nervously and kind of salutes and there's the kind of vacuous model staring out at everybody and it feels sort of satirical in the last kind of quarter and quite sharp but the all the slapstick all the kind of pie fights and falling the puddles and the the stuff with Arthur Mullard, that for me is just sub-carry-on up the Carnaby. Absolutely. Now, you raise an interesting point. If the, if the writer of this script... George Melly. Yes, unfortunately. George and I go back to the art school dances at the Royal College in 1957, where we first met. I don't think I mentioned in the whole scene going, but the sequel, which is My Life in the 50s, it does deal with George much more uh, because he was a much bigger figure then. Although he was more famous in the 60s, he was more influential in, in the 50s. I mean, George wrote one of the funniest um, uh, cartoon strips in Britain with an old Campbell art student called Wally Fawkes, who was Britain's greatest ever clarinet player, except he wasn't British, he was Canadian. Anyway, so Wally did the drawings. That, it's called Fluke, and it's about politics. And it's the only time the Daily Mail ever, ever carried a political uh, strip, did political cartoons. I mean, Daily Mail in the 1950s, not the Daily Mail that you read today. So George and I became close friends. We wrote a book together called The Media Mob. Now, George was very open at one level. He was open about his sexuality to his wife, to his friends, and he was fairly open about his business. But oddly enough, he never once mentioned to me that he was writing this movie. Not once. He never mentioned it once. And I often wondered whether he was something, a bit ashamed of it. I mean, because custard pie jokes aren't George. It's back to Wardour Street again. Let's get let's get the writer in here. Let's get the writer. We've got writer George Manning. George, do you write? Do you write? You know, do you know pie joke? Can you put a few pies in there just to cheer it up a little bit? Well, yes, if you pay me, I'll do anything. And then, and much as I love him, he was he was a, he, like you and I. I mean, he had to earn a living. So going back to what I was saying a few minutes earlier, at the very end of it, if it had actually been a serious film about two young girls coming down and get caught up in the murkier side of post six. 
60s, early 70s revolutionary kind of shenanigans, instead of falling in puddles, actually started to dig a little bit deeper about exploitation of people. That would have actually been a very, very interesting movie. And lots of B feature films, interestingly, do, as we both know, do carry that kind of message uh, um, with much more panache, but it didn't use the swinging 60s as its logo. Mm. It did actually have the, the funniest woman ever in Irene Handel. Completely yeah, she's wasted. great. Yes, but completely wasted. I yeah. mean, what a great opportunity to have actually, you know, to rewrite George's script. You know, she's the landlady of the hotel that they arrive at, you know, so she's funny, but it's also she's got a whole backlog of people who are, you know, in that kind of hinterland that they fall into. Yeah, and it could be f- fictional sort of stuff, you know, it wouldn't be a great movie, but at least it would have been a kind of, I don't know, from my point of view, it would have been a movie of itself, not a, an attempt to, to, to the story which had been told a thousand times before and um, five years too late because this, you know the, it was all over by then anyway. You know, in the seven plots of literature, the, the maiden gets taken away by the dragon and has to be rescued. And, and that's, that's the basic plot. And it doesn't matter what it's called, you know, when a lonely damsel's a lonely damsel and whether there are two of them or one of them, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter, you know. i tell you what's a weird thing about it, which I've only noticed. Lots of the surnames of the characters are based on words from the Jabberwocky. Were you aware of that? I wasn't aware of it, no. But being George, it's highly likely. I mean, he, 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 a little private joke, possibly. Okay. Yeah, right, okay, that's interesting, because um, Jeremy Lloyd's character is called Jeremy Tove. That's a word from Jabberwocky. There's um, Wabe. Irene Handel plays Mrs. Gimble, the Garen Gimble in the Wabe. That seems quite kind of hippier kind of end of the 60s rather than the sort of mod end of the 60s. I mean, George was highly literate. I mean, you know, he came from a good background and he was very bright. But it ought to follow, given that he was an excellent autobiographer and writer. But, but George was no scriptwriter, and and ninety percent of the people who write movies are not scriptwriters either. I'm not singling him out. I mean, I think in his own way, he did a good job. What about those those early sixties kitchen sinks? You know, those. Are you like those kind of films? No, I found them intolerable. Really. Did you really? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and I kept off the movies as well. I mean, in I'll see, I, I don't think I mentioned films as such. But those kind of studies of human behaviour are not particular to the period of the 60s. And I think this is the biggest problem, is, is when we're discussing... Well, when you're talking to me about the 60s, I've got an e-date fix about what they represent. And as I've said before, they're, they're about the political revolution in the sense that you could attack politicians and, and the artists were free to do more or less what they wanted. And the film world carried on. Yes, it reflected them. There were directors who were, I mean, you would be balmy if you didn't think The Hard Day's Night and, and Help weren't absolutely 60s movies, because they were, because Dick Lester was a child of the 60s. And he shared the ethos and the ideas and the, the manifesto, if there was one, about what it was to be a child of the 60s, although he was 10 years older than everybody else. I mean, there were many people who were older than everybody else, but they all jumped on, jumped in, got with it. <laughs> yeah. Groovy, baby. Yeah, groovy. Um, cool. What about, um, you know, there's films like um, 
the knack. The knack was interesting. That's an archetypal. That's supposed to be about swinging London, isn't it? Well, a slightly it kind was. of chaotic way. It was wasn't so much about swinging London. I think it was very much about Dulux paint. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everything was painted white, but it did give a lot of, again, aspiring actors some kind of wacky parts to play. And, and you know, whether you like it or dislike it, it could have only been made in the 60s. It, was, it couldn't have been made at any other time. I was actually in a film called The Pole. It was made, made by a young filmmaker about a true story about a, a late 60s art experiment where two young art students walked across Norfolk with a pole on their head. And I, I, I was the person who was responsible for giving them the money, to, to, for getting the money from the government to, so they, to sponsor their walk, as it were. You know, I mean, it does sound a bit corny, but it was wacky, zany, hey, you know, that's <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know. I mean, but, it, but it was done with the spirit of revolution. I mean... Did you see Smashing Time at the time? Or no, I no, I didn't. You saw it retrospectively. I, I, I'll be honest. I only saw it when you told me that, that we would be discussing it, and I watched it twice. Right. I didn't want to do it an injustice, or any of the people who were in it, or the memory of the people who were in it. But, but in so having said that, I felt I couldn't be dis dishonest and, and say that I thought it was a success. Having known, you know, the writer as as well as I knew, knew anybody, and um, you know, I'd like to have said to George, had I known he was writing it at the time, beware, friend, you know, that, that they're going to make a lot of demands on you that you might not like. Uh, and when you finally see the final cut, you'll be asking you where your film was, because it won't be much of it. I mean, he didn't write the pie scenes or the, you know, the cafe scenes. There's no dialogue there, was there? He just... Yeah, they, they, the, the director or, or the producer told the director, this, this is not funny, this film. You know, so let's throw some pies around. I mean, you can see it's like two different films. Mm. Your last 10 minutes in which there are hints of more sinister goings on and behaviour, probably the last, they had to finish it some way. So I suppose they got a bit of George's original script, but the rest of it is just director thinking, well, this is dull, I better get some jokes in. And, yeah. and George, being George, would have actually done, done all that stuff about my knickers are damp because he liked dirty jokes, you know. Right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how, so what, that's how he was, you know, so he would be coerced quite easily. I don't think George had a very high standard of morals. I, I, my feeling about him was that he would do anything for money. And there was a side to him which was slightly treacherous as well and dishonest. Uh, and you can only really say that about people that are your friends. I mean, because you, if you don't know them, you're just maligning them for no reason. But, but I liked him in spite of all his weaknesses. Very odd man, George, and um, very funny at times. Uh, but a smashing time was not his finest hour. Um, and, and, and nor, nor anybody else's. <laughs> no, and it's what's strange is the viewer reviews in IMDb, so these aren't professional critics, they're sort of ordinary punters. Yeah. It's 10 out of 10, 7 out of 10, 9 out of 10. A couple of people are saying this is a dire mess, but most yeah. people seem to absolutely love it. I, I suspect they're people who saw it when they were kids and it was fun, you know, it's a fun film if you're 10, you know, pies and wet knickers and things. I, it would be difficult to say. I mean, I can't imagine the only people who'd watch it are the people who probably saw it first off 
uh, are my age or a little bit younger and love all the kind of visual references. And people are easily amused. I am. I'm no different in my own way. And yeah, I mean, if that's what you wanted, a kind of ersatz reminiscence of the best years of your life, in a funny kind of way, that film would do it for you. But it's Prozac, basically. It's not feeling well. It's an injection of feeling well. And the truth of the matter is the swinging London 70s revolution didn't hit everywhere. If I'm being positive, uh, and, and if you said to me, Barry, what, what was your first reaction? I would probably say, if I wasn't who I was, uh, it's a very colourful and enjoyable film about the 60s and very funny and, you know, lots of funny jokes about pies and then it's a bit bad at the end. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I could put an argument for it. There is actually, I don't know if this is intentional, but I picked up a Private Eye reference in there. Yes, there was one, yeah. Yeah, it seems intentional. So I should just explain, well, tell me if I'm right or wrong. The two main characters played by Reed Sushingham and Lynn Redgrave, are called Brenda and Yvonne. And they are the names that Private Eye had for... The Queen and her sister, yeah. Yeah, is that, is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah, and that's right. Think that, that, you think that's a knowing reference then? I think George would have known that. Right. And they're very unusual names. But also they're gay names. They're, they're the kind of gay community at the time. You know, it's Julian and Sandy, it's Kenneth Horn, Round the Horn. And, oh, Mr. Horn, it's only Julian. You know, it's Brenda... Oh, Yvonne. Oh, she's all oh, she is. I mean, it, that, that, that's, those are the names that you wear. That's why we chose them. Right. We chose them at Private Eye because they were the kind of lingua franca of the most, <laughs> the, the opposite end of the universe to the, Her Majesty the Queen of England and her rotten sister. So, sorry, a dead sister. No, sorry, <laughs> uh, Princess Elizabeth. Oh, the one who smoked a lot and shagged everything. Oh, no. No, Barry. Um, Princess Margaret. Bless, you know. Her cotton socks. Yeah, bless her. <laughs> cotton knickers, I think. Let's just fade that out there before Barry gets me in trouble with his salacious gossip about HRH Yvonne. It doesn't get much more 60s, though, than the ups and downs of Princess Margaret's knickers, does it? Thank you, Barry Fantoni, for watching Smashing Time twice for us and coming on the show to talk about it. It's taken until episode 19 of Soho Bites for somebody to use the fantastic word ersatz, and it was down to an 80-year-old bloke to do it. Come on, you other Soho Bites contributors. Time to up your game. On the show notes, there's a wealth of stuff for this episode, links to information about both of my esteemed guests, Jago Hazard and Barry Fantoni, including the first ever episode of Barry's 1966 TV show, A Whole Scene Going. And don't take our word for it on Smashing Time, you might love it. There's a link to the full film on the show notes so you can make your own mind up. Go to SohoBitesPodcast.com and click on the Smashing Time poster. Thanks also to my friend Joe Alessi for recreating our text conversation with me in audio form. Unfortunately, you can't follow Joe on Twitter or any other social media, in fact, because he recently played a paedophile in Coronation Street and he thought it would be wise to come off all the socials. There are a lot of idiots out there. As ever, you can tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at Soho or email us at sohobytespodcast at gmail.com and don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. 
Until next time, have yourselves a merry little Christmas. Don't leave that bubble. And we'll be back in the new year. Bye for now.